Today, policyheads, welcome to Politics versus Policy. In this 13th episode, we will be discussing COVID-19 and its impact on democracy. We have here joining us for the third time, Dr. Mark Turfitt. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We appreciate it. No problem, Sheila. Good to be back. So if you haven't listened to our previous episodes yet, let me briefly introduce Mark. Mark is a former public policy and politics scholar, scholar at the University of Melbourne. Mark has a very rich background within the policy arena. He formerly works um, as a strategic communications and policy consultant for the governments and the private sectors. And he worked as the director of strategic communications for the Business Council of Australia and was a corporate affairs executive general manager at the West Farmers Limited. So before we begin our discussion about COVID-19 and its impact on democracy, Let's begin with why we talk about it. Most people will argue that because COVID-19 is a health issue, it is more humanitarian than political. So why do you think that we should rethink the implementation of democracy in the era of COVID-19? Well, I think it's raised a whole range of really interesting issues, um, both in terms of how democracy works in a positive sense and also it's growing fault lines, and that's you know, part of a, a global debate about democracy and whether it's fit for purpose for the 21st century. But, um, you know, I think generally, while the issue of COVID as a health issue and increasingly seen as an economic impact issue is becoming, uh, you know, is front and centre of the debate, I think sitting underneath all this and perhaps, you know, when things start to to return to a, you know a covid normal people will discuss what this all meant for democracy because you know we have this debate in victoria on the one hand um about the ability of the executive i you know ministers and um uh and health officials that and particularly health officials that are not elected uh, making significant decisions that really intrude on uh, and and um restrict um, you know, basic freedoms. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, you've got, you know, uh, well, I guess a groundswell uh, of, of, dis of well, um, unease, if not distemper, among uh, large mem members of the public um, who are wondering, you know, how they can actually have a say in this process because, you know, they're starting to uh, question whether this has uh, disproportionate impacts on, on, on non-health issues, well, economic issues, mental health issues, non-specific COVID issues. So, yeah, look, I mean, it, it's just a fascinating time, um, you know, how the cards fall in terms of what this means for democracy and whether we need to change things. I think it's for all, you know, we'll, this will be a debate that will go on, I think, um, probably past the immediate impacts of how we're managing the COVID issues specifically. Which reminds me um, some of the surveys released in the past months. Mm. One of them is the Varieties of Democracy Institute. Mm. They surveyed 142 countries exposure to pandemic backsliding, mm. Mm -hmm. where emergency measures posed a, a threat to a democratic system of mm. the government. Mm. So the survey found that Australia's democracy is at relatively low risk, while yeah. larger Democracies such as the US, India, Brazil, Indonesia are at a medium to high risk. Hmm. So in your opinion, um, why could their pandemic responses accelerate established trends of democratic? Well, well I think there's, there's a couple of things, both on, both, on, on 
on, on two sides of, of the issue. I think what it's, what's, it's clearly accelerated um, is this issue about uh, the increasing power of the executive. So, you know, people who are you know, within the departments, um, the executive staff advising ministers and, and premiers and prime ministers, their ability to make, you know, incredibly significant impactful decisions without the checks and balances that we normally associate with uh, democracy, you know, such as parliament, um, uh, you know, a, a proper process of, of, you know, discussion and submission. That's always the problem and challenge that democracy has. In a time of emergency, whether it's a health crisis, a pandemic, a war, you know, governments have to actually act, have to uh, um, act quickly. And democracy in itself is a pretty, for want of a better word, languid process where the checks and balances take time and they're very contestable. So parliaments don't necessarily have the time to debate these issues. You had to lock down or you had to do this or you had to do that. And I think people accept that. Mm. I think where it gets difficult is the period we're in at the moment where you know, we've accepted the measures that need to be taken to manage the spread of this disease. Um, but people, I think, are looking for the other side of democracy, which is not only, you know, effective action, but for people to actually have some sort of input into the decisions that are impacting mm. on them. So I think, you know, and the accountability issues. So um, executive power, you know, means huge power, but what's being pushed back now is this whole debate about, you know, the political class being accountable. Are they really listening to us? So the sorts of things that were going on before COVID in terms of the fitness of democracy, in terms of its current structure to manage, you know, all the intricacies and complexities and unforeseen events of the 21st century and that division between you know, what is appropriate executive power and how do you actually get, you know, legitimate decisions by bringing in people mm. um, is really, really coming to the fore. Now, you know, in two or three years' time, once we get to a COVID normal or might be even earlier or even later, I think there will be a big debate about this um, because the fallout of it from a non-health perspective in terms of economic impacts, particularly for young people, who already feel alienated by the political system, I think will really come to the fore. Which leads to the next question. So if we're assuming that we're talking about COVID-19 responses in the context of liberal democracy, hmm. to what extent a crisis justifies the unheard public preferences? So like, like you said, the policy decisions in response of, you know, to COVID-19 have mm. clearly shifted from public choice to for the sake of public safety. Yeah. Um, and sometimes one at the expense of the other. So first, how do we draw the line between the two? And second, it may sound counterintuitive, but are they conflicting in this context? In terms of the definition of crisis and, and yeah. Look, yes. I think the really interesting thing about COVID and what I say at this point, I just want to preface it by saying I'm not downplaying the significance of it. It, it, it is much more serious than, than, you know, the flu. It's highly contagious. But as a crisis, I, I, you know, in terms of a war, 
uh, you know, World War Two or you know the threat of nuclear, you know, uh, whatever, or even a cyber security attack. I think the interesting thing about COVID is that uh, as we know more about it, uh, two things are clear. One, that yes, it, it it spreads itself far and wide, but what's becoming clear is that it disproportionately, for want of a better word, kills people in a certain age group. The Spanish flu, for example, the last global pandemic was quite indiscriminate, indiscriminate in terms of, I mean, a lot of 20 and 30 year old people died. So, you know, that I think, I mean, a crisis to me is something that's big, that's unforeseen and it's impacts, you know, it's serious impacts take very little notice of demographics or geography. And yes, the and COVID-19, look, I'm not a medical expert, but yes, COVID-19 ticks some of those boxes in terms of its spread. But demographically, I think, you know, unless it's going to mutate, um, all this is getting around just to say, I, I wonder whether it's a crisis in a health sense. And again, I'm not downplaying it. And, I, and the whole issue has been politicised with all these, you know, weird ideas about 5G and stuff like that. But the reason why I'm saying, is it a crisis, is because democracies legitimately can and should suspend normal processes of deliberative discussion and all those sorts of processes to deal with a crisis, whether it's a, you know, like being attacked in terms of physical war an economic catastrophe like the GFC, I think part of the crisis is self-inflicted. Mm. So then you start to uh, why, uh, start to question whether some of these executive powers are actually justified. So it, it's the weirdest thing. Mm. I mean, it's it's not a. I mean, arguably, it's not the sort of crises that we've faced with similar pandemics. It's not the sort of crises, existential crises that we faced previously with world wars and potential nuclear holocaust and, you know, total collapse of the financial system, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And I know this is controversial, but you can't have a debate about COVID-19 and its ability to impact on democracy in terms of a crisis with actually, without actually asking whether this is actually a crisis. Mm. I know, I'm gonna be pilloried, but that's the thing I, I think it's been really interesting to track. And the problem for politicians who've, who've reacted in the way, and I think quite justifiably at the outset, is they're now so locked into this that it's almost impossible to climb down from. So I, I think the crisis will keep going. It's like a perpetual engine because you know, the government in Australia has spent tens of billions of dollars fixing something which is possibly quite contestable in terms of its impact. And another thing with relation to that, um, we talked about crisis. Um, there is also scepticism towards what it means by economic crisis yeah. in COVID-19. So we have been fed with the narrative of economic failure and disaster since day one. So there is no argument about the state of the economy 
Um, and it means that on a meta level, there is no real substantial debate about economic policy as well. So you have a few politicians talking about JobKeeper, but then there is no basis whatsoever to what constitutes economic crisis. Um, and in comparison to the pre-COVID-19 times where people would actually debate if economy was going well, in post-COVID-19, the parameters of political economic discourse are completely changed. So the fact that both left and right politics have agreed that GDP shrinkage is bad takes the discussion towards the novel realm where previously certain you know, sub-parties would critique that um, GDP was not the only or the legitimate measure of societal progress. But how is that cons- consumerism derided in times of growth becomes missed in the time of degrowth? I think it's a good question, Sheila, because I, I think, again, you think about the democratic process in, 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 a, in a, an ideal or theoretical way. I mean, it's designed to bring in a multitude of voices and each have a different opinion. And the whole point about the parliamentary and the political process in a democratic system is to you know, bring these voices together, argue and contest um, from a variety of perspectives. And it's always about compromise. Mm. Um, again, I'm talking theoretically. The thing about COVID was that the voice that, that determined the policy that we're still in was predominantly health. Um, It was about chief medical officers and health officers Mm. and the prospect, and I remember some of the posts at the time, you know, say goodbye to your grandparents because you'll never see them again. They'll all die. And there was a catastrophization of what COVID-19 would mean, which was quite understandable because no one quite knew what was going to happen. Mm. The problem is, is that, if you have one voice dictating, not dictate, but determining, you know, public policy of significant ramifications in terms of lockdowns and shutting down economies and closing universities and all that sort of stuff, it works when it's clear in people's mind that there is an existential health problem. I think the problem is now is that the policy has been, which is effectively, you know, the lockdown and shutting down the economy policy, is basically a health, public health response. Where the challenge is for governments is to try and introduce an economic, mental health, whatever, those sorts of collateral impacts that I think will become increasingly front and centre of the debate for two reasons. One, if the evidence is what is showing in terms of what COVID is, that it is quite, it's extremely good at making older people very sick, if not dying. For younger people, i.e. under the age of 40, it's not that sort of pandemic. So these are the people, ultimately, younger generations, particularly, who are going to be significantly impacted by the economic issues. So I guess what I'm saying is that If you look back on COVID historically, you'll see this incredibly immediate and effective health response that set the parameters for the political and policy response, which is now being challenged the more we know about both the disease and the impacts of the lockdown, which will increasingly become an economic and even a mental health community Mm. health issue um 
my feeling is at the start of this debate, people were writing, oh, this is going to increase trust in governments. I actually think it's going to destroy a lot of trust in government mm. for a couple of reasons. One, the overreaction, perceived overreaction, and two, the perceived underreaction. So, uh, you know, places like the US where, or Indonesia where the response was just to get on with things, mm. there'll be people very unhappy with that. And in places like Australia or the UK where it's been pretty severe in terms of economic uh, and social clampdown on movement, I think uh, governments will really pay the price for this at some point. To add on to that, do you think that lockdown is a luxury? Well, it de- depends who you are. I mean, for an older person, um, no, it's not because the evidence, you know, the facts, unless, again, the virus mutates. And there is obviously a lot of, you know, um, suggestions or even you know, evidence um, that there are longer-term impacts for younger people. But, again, this is a virus that's been around for six months, so I think it's pretty hard, again, just I'm not a medical doctor, but to extrapolate long-term implications for this at the moment. But, um, see, I guess the issue is that the, the lockdown and all those sorts of restrictions are not overreactions in themselves, but because they've been so bluntly applied, it's sort of highlighted, I guess, you know, the one-size-fits-all response of 21st century government administration probably really needs to be thought about. So, you know, people will probably look back and say maybe the best way to have dealt with this is do the initial lockdown, but after three months where it was clear that it was becoming... Uh, you know, it may not be a serious, broad health threat, but at those people who have immune deficiencies or older, target all the resources there. Mm. And it's a less blunt approach. Mm. I sound like I'm a medical, I'm not a medical expert, I'm just thinking about this as a, um, I mean, it's not just a crisis point for health system, but it, it could very easily slip into a crisis point for society and economics more generally. And the questions will be raised down the track, given the significance of the impacts, just how governments respond to these sorts of things in the 21st century. So getting back to your question, Sheila, is lockdown a luxury? The point is, is I think that governments need to think much more strategically and be much more prepared to act in a far more nuanced way Mm. to issues. Uh, rather than instituting lockdowns for, you know, in this case, for healthy people. I mean, it's historically unprecedented. Coming back to um, what you said about the politicisation of COVID-19, it seems that it is particularly easy for politicians to use this crisis as a political weapon. And it's been going on, you know, from the use of it to... Um, induce fear and blame to camp- for campaign strategies and yep. so on. And we see that in US elections campaigns, mm. especially both sides have been using these terms a lot. Mm. Um, do you think this will damage democracy in the long run? Or is it simply a byproduct of democracy? Because, you know, the fact that democracy means that politicians have to become people pleasers in order to win elections simply means that crises such as this are even more prone to being politicised. 
Well, look, I think it's a really good question. And some of the things that I've said before sort of preface, you know, before we came into COVID, you know, there's some significant issues around trust and democratic deficit and, you know, increasing distance between the political class in democracies around the world and their constituents. Uh, Again, you know, I saw some articles at the start of COVID saying, you know, the effective and uh, efficient response of governments around the world to clamp down on this will mean that trust will go up. My thought was, no, I actually think it will go down because, and as with many things with COVID, it's accelerated a lot of those things that were going on, you know, technologically, people work from home, you know, shopping online, all that sort of stuff. In the same way, I think it's accelerated a lot of the fault lines in democracy. But it's also, I think, accelerated the importance of and the perceived importance of people's voices in creating policy, co-creating policy that is much more nuanced than what I think we have been generally getting from the political class, not just with COVID, but for quite a long time. I mean, the world is probably the most diversified and fragmented. I say not not in a negative way, but fragmentation in terms of, you know, people asserting their individual identities and rights in, in unprecedented ways, particularly through social media. Yet we still have governments and politicians and political classes organised around two ideologies that go each other at each other with sledgehammers, and that's the way they see the world around them. It's you know it's pretty it's a zero sum game, and I think partly the response from the political class, particularly in Western democracies, the overreaction perceived is part of the political culture. You know you've got to kill your enemy, and uh, you've everything is polarized and it's very black and white and the virus is the wicked enemy um, and we must extinguish it. Mm. Um, I mean, they haven't said that in so many terms, but, you know, we, we started off trying to flatten the curve and I just really don't know what the end game is. I think, you know, uh, politically politicians don't want anyone to die, but that's impossible. So, um, uh, yeah, I think on balance, I think it's really got people to think about themselves as individual citizens and their rights and, and how public policy decisions can have huge impacts on their lives and they're not seeing a perceived voice. And I think that's a positive thing because I think people will, will probably become more, much more politically motivated. But what it's also accelerated is, I think, the disconnect between the political class. And their way of viewing the world, which is a pretty zero-sum game and just, you know, everything's very black and white and unnuanced uh, and how the world really works. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think from a dem- democratic point of view, there will be a lot of questions being asked by people. A controversial question. Do you think this is the end of democracy? If we see after 9-11 event, governments introduce mm. civilian surveillance as a form of, you know, fighting terrorism... With COVID-19, the introduction of lockdowns is almost as similar, you know, the mm-hmm. concern about the government's expanding or normalising um, surveillance in itself, you know, what would be the future of democratic system? What I find really ironic about this whole issue is um, the idea of executive power um, has occurred, you know, sort of as the path of least resistance, um, how easy it has been for governments to do what they have done. 
and I'm not saying again, you know, that initial response, I think, you know, was very warranted. No one knew much about it. Uh, it was spreading wildly, you know, really disrupted people's perceptions of, uh, you know, normality and politicians had to react. And I, I don't envy them in terms of making decisions. But I think what's been really, really you know, slightly disturbing is the ability or the desire for some politicians, and I'm not saying this in any political way, but to keep on with this, mm. you know, to keep tripling down on, um, oh, we need, you know, um, you know, we need surveillance, we need the police out there, we need the ADF out there. I mean, yes, we do. But again, if you took the view that the issue is more nuanced than we thought it was from a health point of view, you know, even you know, a month or two months ago, you would start to think about, well, you know, engaging in a conversation with the public about, well, you know, we did our bit, we made it on the, you know, in terms of the emergency powers, we made it on the best information available, but as information is coming to bear, we realise we much made much nuanced approach. No one seems to be talking about that at all. Um, and again, this this is just a perspective, but I think again, it speaks to some very very interesting uh, dynamics within the political class. Um, you know, that they for the last twenty years have really struggled to manage the public. Uh, you know, social media makes it incredibly difficult for politicians to get people on side, to get a mandate, to get a common agreement. Part of me thinks, you know, not that I'm not saying the politicians enjoy this, but this is a really unprecedented time for them where they can get everyone together. They can take action in a very unilateral um, way. And I'm not saying, you know, that they get up each morning thinking, oh, look, you know, I've got absolute power. But when you're under politics, I imagine... Well, I know because I know I've known quite politicians. I mean, if I can just get stuff done, that's what you do. I think you know part of this culture is well, I can get stuff done, um, mm. and it feeds on itself. And it's very hard, I think, for politicians to let go of the, the paradigm that they have set up because you know they've got a they've invested so much of their political capital into this. They can't just have a press conference one day and say, oh, look, you know, we're probably a bit wrong on this and we probably have to wind this back a bit. That is going to be the big problem. And on that point, let's talk about the state of Victoria. Yeah. Um, so for listeners, if you don't already know, we reside in Melbourne. Um, so currently most of Australian states have eased their restrictions um, and some have no more restrictions at all. But in the state of Victoria, because we have been having exponential rise of COVID-19 cases daily, um, we have been in lockdown 2.0 since July. And our state premier, Daniel Andrews, has been faced with inquiries with regards to what, you know, what the public or the parliament sees as a faulty decisions with um, hotel quarantine. And recently he announced his decision to um, extend the state of emergency to another 12 months. But today, today... Um, Parliament has a great to only extend it to only six months. So my question is, what are your thoughts on the arguably decreasing legitimacy of Dan Andrews' government? And, you know, from the hotel inquiry to state of emergency extension, most who disagree with his decision would claim that, you know, there is a lack of input legitimacy. 
What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a. I have a disclaimer. Many you you read out my biography in it, uh, and in a very fulsome way, Sheila. But uh, back in the day, in the nineties, I was a senior advisor to Jeff Kennett. Um, so, uh, but I've never been a member of a political party. So I'm just saying that because I'm going to say some things about the way it's been handled in Victoria. Um, based on my experience in government, even though it was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, but I, I, they're not partisan. They're based on, you know, having taught public policy in Melbourne Uni um, and what is good process and institutional design to come up with the best outcomes. I have never seen anything like what is coming out in terms of the information about how this has been handled. I just think it's absolutely appalling. Um, and, and Sheila, uh, you were a student in, in my governance class. In five minutes, you know, at some point during the course, I could have said to you and, and your fellow students, design a, a, a process to create an effective quarantine contact tracing system or whatever. And you guys would have been able to do it in quarter of an hour, not because, you know, the way I taught it, but because of basic concepts of good public policy administration. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the failure is twofold. One, the disconnect, which is always a, which is always a problem in siloed bureaucracies where, you know, it's very hard for them to get together. They mm -hmm. were given a whole range of different roles and tasks. But as you know, in governance, one of the key things about trying to join up different bureaucratic structures in a network is you just can't let it self-organise, that you need some hierarchical structure to make sure that the, dis the different pieces of the puzzle actually fit together and continue to work. It just seems to be totally missing. And, and the paradox is, is that, and again, I, I just read about this because I haven't been involved in state government for some time, that Daniel Andrews as a Premier and his office as a central agency is very controlling. So how that hierarchical aspect of good governance to bring together disparate resources to create an effective solution didn't happen. I, I think the findings, and I just, you know, I mean, I don't know exactly what the findings would be, but I think they'll be incredibly startling um, when all the pieces are put together. So you can probably tell, um, and I'm saying this as a Victorian, and I'm saying this as someone who... who has taught a, young, a lot of uh, you know, younger people and knowing what the impacts will be on them of this, I'm really furious about it because from just a good governance point of view, and it's been said at a political level, and I'm not saying it from a political level, I'm saying it from a policy administration level, it is the worst public policy blunder I can think of, not only in Australia, because the impacts are so huge in not having the basic structures in place to corral the virus and the quarantine and then to have the capacity to follow up with contact tracing. What blew my mind a couple of weeks, about a week ago, was that the government was trumping, uh, trumpeting, and probably trumping, trumpeting <laughs> the, 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 that they've, they moved from a paper-based contract tasting system to a digital one. I just thought, mm. why do you want to advertise the fact that it took you, you know, how many months in the 21st century to set up? Anyway, mm. I, I've stopped watching it on television because it just, <laughs> uh, it, it just 
blows my mind. And I, I actually feel sorry for you know some of those bureaucrats that have become literally public figures because of because I, I actually don't think it's their fault because you know they're doing a job. They had one piece. They didn't have the whole piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're being pilloried and, and you know, people's perception of bureauc- uh, bureaucracies has declined. The accountability here is, is at a ministerial level. And, mm. and as I think as Dan Andrews acknowledged, it's an accountability at his level. Now, whether, you know, with the findings that I think would be re- really, really damning, whether he resigns and the health minister resigns and or whoever is on his crisis mm. cabinet of eight, that will be the interesting thing. In the back of my mind, I, there is a possibility they won't. I'm, I'm torn between, I think, when we're talking about like COVID-19, not COVID-19 policy response, there's always a you know, debate about what will be the best balance between public health response yeah. and like the decisions for public safety, but at the same time, the citizens' rights and freedom. I think this is the key thing, which is the problem with the political system at the moment, is that it's still dictated by a narrow group of people. You know, I mean, now we elect them every four years and that, that's fine. And that's part of the you know, accountability process. But I think, you know, one of the frustrations about accountability about this issue is that people say, like, you know, I can't vote this government out until 2022. You know, that's fine, even if they do or people forget about this. You know, democracy is a system, and I've said this a number of times in articles, it's set up to manage the 19th century and at best the first half of the 20th century. When you think about how it determines who is the expert on public policy, it's a narrow group of people. And in this day and age, you know, with people having access to all sorts of information, I know it gets really wacky at times, but, you know, people also uh, are empowered with knowledge in unprecedented ways. There's got to be a better way. And I think this is, a, this is the real lesson about COVID-19. To avoid the blunt, nuanced, politicised, at times incompetent responses or to, to buffer against that risk, the inputs into policy need and the, and the institutional design, you know, rather than electing a bunch of people every four years. Yeah, they can still make the decisions, but where they get their information from uh, in terms of, you know, forget about the polling or the focus groups or listening to one particular voice, having a structure where you have disparate voices. My thought at the start of the crisis was, yeah, look, I think the health voice should be predominant, Mm -hmm. but political decision makers, premiers and prime ministers should be setting up a round table of groups, which involves health, public health, mental health, economic, youth. And I mean, I know... And that's the problem where you have to, in a d- democratic system, you have to react quickly. You don't have time to do that sort of stuff. But I, I would have thought that after some time that would have happened. Now, it's happening in piecemeal. You know, um, you know uh, you've got premiers and prime ministers ringing lobby groups, but it's all ad hoc and, you know, very, very short term. Um, so, you know, maybe one of the lessons out of this, and I, and I hope one of the lessons is that, you know, dealing with these sorts of things in a nuanced, effective way requires much more than the political class and their inc- increasingly narrow world experience, which is effectively uh, go to university, join a you know, political party student group, become an electoral officer, be elected to parliament, become mm. prime minister or premier. 
that that is crazy and i think the problems that that narrow world experience and that you know seeing the world in both black and white terms politically and i think also existentially with this crisis um uh, you know hopefully people put the pieces together and realize that you know the combination of a political system that was set up to basically channel a narrow group of voices into public policy in the 19th century mm. is just not fit for purpose for the 21st. And again, I, I'm just saying this politically, and I promise you I was not going to rant because I just was talking about, <laughs> it, about what's happened with COVID and its impacts. Um, but, you know, it is, it is something which is very controversial. But, I mean, they, these thoughts are based on, you know, a purely a public policy point of view. When we talk about, you know, uh, democracy, freedom and citizens, mm. I can't help but to think about Karens. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so, you know, one of the largest and most controversial debates during the pandemic is whether, you know, governments should have the authority to reinforce what is considered as private life. And so I think that is also one of the reasons why the Karens emerge, right? It was um, um, objectively speaking, you know, it doesn't matter whether we agree or disagree with, you know, the well-known Karens, but to what extent do Karens claims or to what extent do you think that uh, regulating one's private life, which is like mask wearing, for example, yeah. is justified or unjustified? That's a good question. Can I just make a cheeky comment at the beginning? What I found yes. really interesting about the Karens was it was a bit gender genderized like you know lots of complaining blokes why can't we call them tonys you know the tonys and the, <laughs> i think the karen a bit unfair like you know why can't anyway sorry i diverse um <laughs> the i mean it just depends on the restriction i mean i, I personally don't have a problem with masks um i think they'll turn into a really interesting industry in terms of you know you could walk around town and get paid for advertising some product with, oh, um, yeah <laughs> yeah so there'll be a whole bunch of uh, you know, opportunities there for people. Um, I do have a problem with a curfew. I do have a problem with, you know, those sorts of restrictions um, because they are not unlike, as many people have commented, um, you know, uh, incredibly non-democratic. Um, again, I mean, it, 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 I think the really big lesson out of the COVID crisis is just looking things at a in a nuanced way. And it's really, really important to think about that because you know we, we have just allocated you know huge amounts of scarce resources in terms of public funding that is going to really impact on Australia's economy and the opportunities for young people for decades to come when you think about the response and how you could have managed it um, at a third of the cost and still save the lives of people at most vulnerable you know, that whole issue about, you know, there is no one solution for this. So at one particular point of time, you know, lockdowns and curfews and masks would be appropriate. But, you know, the struggle for governments is to crawl, uh, sorry, dig themselves out of this unnuanced one-size-fits-all approach into something that actually recognises that this whole thing is incredibly diversified and fragmented in terms of its response, in terms of demographics, locations, what people need, as a community to um, deal with this issue. I mean, some countries will have to wear masks. Some will, you know, at times need to be shut down, but not everyone all the time. 
So I guess that's just a way of, I guess, getting around to my basic point is that people will be shaking their heads for year, decades to come about just how undifferentiated the response was. And politicians, you know, the easy path of least resistance is to apply everything to everyone. And, and that's a function of, you know, the way democracy works, still works, which worked, you know, in, in, prior to social media and prior to the fragmentation of the 21st century, but just doesn't work anymore. So in, in short, yeah, I mean, it just depends. I mean, do we suspend our democratic rights? I think yes, sometimes, depending on the circumstances and providing people given information. It might be at times necessary to do a broad brush approach. But again, what the response going forward with COVID, I think, has got to increasingly focus on is nuance and differentiation. Thank you, Mike, for the episode. Uh, it's been really insightful to listen to you as always. Um, thank you listeners for listening to this episode um, I hope that you stay tuned for our next ones thank you, see ya